Mr. Glegg's unmistakable kind-heartedness was shown in this, that it pained him more to see his wife at variance with others, even with Dolly, the servant, than to be in a state of cavil with her himself. And the quarrel between her and Mr. Tulliver vexed him so much that it quite nullified the pleasure he would otherwise have had in the state of his early cabbages, as he walked in his garden before breakfast the next morning. Still, he went into breakfast with some slight hope that, now Mrs. Glegg had slept upon it, her anger might be subdued enough to give way to her usually strong sense of family decorum. She had been used to boast that there had never been any of those deadly quarrels among the Dudsons which had disgraced other families, that no Dudson had ever been cut off with a shilling, and no cousin of the Dudsons disowned as, indeed, why should they be? for they had no cousins who had not money out at use, or some houses of their own, at the very least. There was one evening cloud which had always disappeared from Mrs. Glegg's brow when she sat at the breakfast table. It was her fuzzy front of curls, for as she occupied herself in household matters in the morning, it would have been a mere extravagance to put on anything so superfluous to the making of leathery pastry as a fuzzy curled front. By half-past ten, decorum demanded the front. Until then, Mrs. Glegg could economize it, and society would never be any the wiser. But the absence of that cloud only left it more apparent that the cloud of severity remained, and Mr. Glegg, perceiving this, as he sat down to his milk porridge, which it was his old frugal habit to stem his morning hunger with, prudently resolved to leave the first remark to Mrs. Glegg, lest to so delicate an article as a lady's temper, the slightest touch should do mischief. People who seem to enjoy their ill temper have a way of keeping it in fine condition by inflicting privations on themselves. That was Mrs. Glegg's way. She made her tea weaker than usual this morning and declined butter. It was a hard case that a vigorous mood for quarrelling, so highly capable of using an opportunity, should not meet with a single remark from Mr. Glegg on which to exercise itself. But by and by it appeared that his silence would answer the purpose, for he heard himself apostrophize at last in that tone particular to the wife of one's bosom. Well, Mr. Glegg, it's a poor return I get for making you the wife I've made you all these years. If this is the way I'm to be treated, I'd better had known it before my poor father died. And then, when I'd wanted a home... I should have gone elsewhere, as a choice was offered me. Mr. Glegg paused from his porridge and looked up, not with any new amazement, but simply with that quiet, habitual wonder with which we regard constant mysteries. Why, Mrs. G., what have I done now? Done now, Mr. Glegg? Done now? I am sorry for you. Not seeing his way to any pertinent answer, Mr. Glegg reverted to his porridge. There's husbands in the world, continued Mrs. Glegg after a pause. I should have known how to do something different to siding with everybody else against their own wives. Perhaps I'm wrong, and you can teach me better. But I always heard as it's the husband's place to stand by the wife. Instead of rejoicing and triumphing when folks insult her. Now, what call have you to say that? said Mr. Glegg, rather warmly, 
for though a kind man, he was not as meek as Moses. When did I rejoice or triumph over you? There's ways of doing things worse than speaking out plain, Mister Glegg. I'd sooner you tell me to my face as you make light of me, than try to make out as everybody's in the right but me, and come to your breakfast in the morning as I've hardly slept an hour this night, and sulk at me as if I was the dirt under your feet. Sulk at you," said Mister Glegg in a tone of angry facetiousness. "You're like a tipsy man as thinks everybody's had too much but himself." Don't lower yourself with using coarse language to me, Mister Glegg. It makes you look very small, though you can't see yourself," said Missus Glegg in a tone of energetic compassion. "A man, in your place, should set an example and talk more sensible." "Yes, but will you listen to sense?" retorted Mister Glegg sharply. "The best sense I can talk to you is what I said last night, as you're." In the wrong to think of calling in your money when it's safe enough, if you'd let it alone, all because of a bit of a tiff, and I was in hopes you'd had altered your mind this morning. But if you'd like to call it in, don't do it in a hurry now, and breed more enmity in the family. But wait till there's a pretty mortgage to be had without any trouble. You'd have to set a lawyer to work now to find an investment and make no end of expense. Mrs. Glegg felt there was really something in this. But she tossed her head and emitted a guttural interjection to indicate that her silence was only an armistice, not a peace. And in fact, hostilities soon broke out again. "I'll thank you for my cup of tea now, Missus G," said Mister Glegg, seeing as she did not proceed to give it to him as usual when he had finished his porridge. She lifted the teapot with a slight toss of the head and said, "I'm glad to hear you'll thank me, Mister Glegg." It's little thanks I get for what I do for folks in this world. Though there's never a woman on your side of the family, Mister Glegg, as is fit to stand up with me, and I'd say it if I was on my dying bed. Not but what I've always conducted myself civil to your kin, and there isn't one of 'em can say the contrary. Though my equals, they aren't, and nobody shall make me say it. You'd better leave finding fault with my kin till you've left off quarrelling with your own, Missus G. Said Mister Glegg with angry sarcasm, "I'll trouble you for the milk jug." That's as false a word as ever you spoke, Mister Glegg," said the lady, pouring out the milk with unusual profuseness, as much as to say, "If he wanted milk, he should have it with a vengeance." And you know it's false. I'm not the woman to quarrel with my own kin. You may, for I've known you to do it. Why? What did you call it yesterday then? Leaving your sister's house in a tantrum. I'd no quarrel with my sister, Mister Glegg, and it's false to say it. Mister Tulliver's none of my blood, and it was him quarrelled with me and drove me out of the house. But perhaps you'd have had me stay and be swore at, Mister Glegg. Perhaps you was vexed not to hear more abuse and foul language poured out upon your own wife. But let me tell you, it's your disgrace. Did ever anybody hear the like this parish? Said Mister Glegg, getting hot. A woman with everything provided for her and allowed to keep her own money the same as if it was settled on her, and with a gig new stuffed and lined at no end of expense, and provided for when I die beyond anything she could expect, to go on in this way, biting and snapping like a mad dog. 
It's beyond everything as God Almighty shall have made women so. These last words were uttered in a tone of sorrowful agitation. Mr. Glegg pushed his tea from him and tapped the table with both hands. Well, Mr. Glegg, if those are your feelings, it's best they should be known, said Mrs. Glegg, taking off her napkin and folding it in an excited manner. But if you talk of my being provided for beyond what I could expect, I beg leave to tell you, as I'd a right to expect the many things as I don't find, and as to my being like a mad dog, it's well if you're not cried shame on by the country for your treatment of me, for it's what I can't bear, and I won't bear. Here, Mrs. Glegg's voice intimated that she was going to cry, and breaking off from speech, she rang the bell violently. Sally, she said, rising from her chair and speaking in rather a choked voice, light a fire upstairs and put the blinds down. Mr. Glegg, you'll please do order what you'd like for dinner. I shall have gruel. Mrs. Glegg walked across the room to the small bookcase and took down Baxter's saint's everlasting rest, which she carried with her upstairs. It was the book she was accustomed to lay open before her on special occasions, on wet Sunday mornings, or when she heard of a death in a family, or when, as in this case, her quarrel with Mr. Glegg had been set an octave higher than usual. But Mrs. Glegg carried something else upstairs with her, which, together with the saint's rest and the gruel, may have had some influence in gradually calming her feelings and making it possible for her to endure existence on the ground floor, shortly before tea-time. This was, partly, Mr. Glegg's suggestion that she would do well to let her five hundred lie still until a good investment turned up, and further, his parenthetic hint at his handsome provision for her in case of his death. Mr. Glegg, like all men of his stamp, was extremely reticent about his will, and Mrs. Glegg, in her gloomier moments, had forebodings that, like other husbands of whom she had heard, he might cherish the mean project of heightening her grief at his death by leaving her poorly off, in which case she was firmly resolved that she would have scarcely any weeper on her bonnet and would cry no more than if he had been a second husband. But if he had really shown her any testamentary tenderness, it would be affecting to think of him, poor man, when he was gone. And even his foolish fuss about the flowers and garden stuff, and his insistence on the subject of snails, would be touching when it was once fairly at an end. To survive Mr. Glegg, and talk eulogistically of him, as a man who might have his weaknesses, but who had done the right thing by her, notwithstanding his numerous poor relations, to have sums of interest coming in more frequently and secreted in various corners, baffling to the most ingenious of thieves. For, to Mrs. Clegg's mind, banks and strong-boxes would have nullified the pleasure of property. She might as well have taken her food in capsules. Finally, to be looked up to by her own family and the neighbourhood, so as no woman can ever hope to be who has not, the praetorite and present dignity comprised in being a widow well left. All this made a flattering and conciliatory view of the future, so that when good Mr. Glegg, restored to good humour by much hoeing and moved by the sight of his wife's empty chair, with her knitting rolled up in a corner, went upstairs to her, and observed that the bell had been tolling for poor Mr. Morton, 
Mrs. Glegg answered magnanimously, quite as if she had been an uninjured woman. Ah, then, there'll be a good business for somebody to take to. Baxter had been open at least eight hours by this time, for it was nearly five o'clock, and if people are to quarrel often, it follows as a corollary that their quarrels cannot be protracted beyond certain limits. Mr. and Mrs. Glegg talked quite amicably about the Tullivers that evening. Mr. Glegg went the length of admitting that Tulliver was a sad man for getting into hot water and was like enough to run through his property. And Mrs. Glegg, meeting this acknowledgement halfway, declared that it was beneath her to take notice of such a man's conduct, and that, for her sister's sake, she would let him keep the five hundred a while longer, for when she put it out on a mortgage, she should only get four per cent. End of chapter 12 Book number one, Boy and Girl Recording by Breathe